Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Seen and Heard podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Meikle, and today we're talking trade again, uh, specifically with the European Union and about the recent free trade agreement. Um, New Zealand's beef and lamb industries are very export focused, as you all know. Over 90% of sheep meat exported, about 88% of our beef also gets an OE. Um, so beef and lamb New Zealand in turn has a large focus on improving opportunities for our industry and for our exporters. Free trade agreements, FTAs, are a key part of that, especially with high margin markets. And joining us today is Francis Dignan from Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Policy Advocacy advocacy, beg your pardon, and environment team. Welcome, Francis. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Good. Now, listeners may remember Francis from such podcast hits as Brexit Redux, which we did back at the start of the year. Um, and actually, I had a quick look. It was a really popular um, podcast, interestingly, because it was a very complex issue. I know and we certainly got into some interesting threads of discussion in that podcast. So um, great to have you back, Francis. I think it's a slightly simpler topic this time. But just to start... You're our Senior Manager, International Trade. What does that mean? What do you do all day? Great question. Uh, very good question. Uh, uh, so I guess the we kind of break down our work into three areas. Uh, there's improving um, our market access, and so the likes of the UK FTA or the EU FTA as well. Um, and then the next part of what we do, which actually I spend most of my time doing, is maintaining and protecting market access. So to make sure that what we've got through our tapestry of FTAs or, or under the World Trade Organization trading conditions means that we actually can use them uh, and people aren't being sneaky and taking away that access. Um, and then the last part of it, and this is something in particular now that the EU FTA uh, has been completed, is we'll be looking at unlocking uh, new potential in different markets. So, you know, where is there possibility that we haven't looked into now and how do we make the most of it uh, kind of looking towards the next 30 years uh, and coming up with a bit, bit of a game plan around that? So those are the kind of the three three main things. The other thing that I'll note is that the, the kind of some of the conversations around market access are changing a bit. So you're seeing that nexus between uh, trade and sustainability, trade and climate change, trade and the environment. So whereas we would normally, you know, the crux of uh, trade negotiators' jobs would be tariffs, uh, now it gets a little bit more complicated into more of those. What's it, What are farmers actually doing on farm? Uh, get brought into those negotiations, which I'm sure we'll talk about more uh, when we dive we, into the FTA. So... These agreements, you know, people view them as being they're between two countries, two economies, uh, um, two regions, if you like. Um, it's at that higher central government level. Why are Beef and Land New Zealand involved? What's our role? Um, why is an industry good organisation in there when ultimately, you know, why is it not left to, to governments? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first thing is some of the free trade agreements that we have in place are actually done on a regional basis. So um, one of the most valuable ones we have is the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement uh, for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and that covers uh, a cross-section of countries, including Japan, Canada, Chile, Singapore. I, I won't name them all, but a, but a range of different ones. And there is the kind of looking to expand that. So the UK is going through a session process to join that. Um, Costa Rica, uh, Ecuador, um, uh, South Korea is also looking on to join that. So, uh, so it's not necessarily just two parties at the table. Um, but I think you know why are we doing anything about it? Look, 
we've been really clear. Uh, our farmers have made it really clear to us that trade matters to them. As you said before, we export a uh, majority of our goods. Uh, and actually, sorry to be a stickler, it's actually a little higher. <laughs> um, so for beef, it's over 90%. For lamb, it's 96%. For mutton, it's 98%. So it's really, really high volumes that we send overseas. And we need to make sure that government is actually negotiating what works for the sector. So making sure that it's our, it makes our life as easy as possible. So we work really closely with the Meat Industry Association that represents exporters and processors to make sure that government's saying the right things and getting a deal that actually works for us. Okay, so we're going to get into the details of the New Zealand-European Union free trade agreement, but let's set the scene a wee bit here. What's our sort of historic and current trade to the EU? I mean, we're, we're we're all about exports. You talked about the figures just there before. How important is the EU in that? And I guess um, maybe you've got a bit of commentary on what comes back the other way from the EU to us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we'll start with sheep meat. Sheep meat's a really uh, big market for us. Um, EU's consistently consistently in the top three um, uh, alongside China and the US. Um, so, look, we've got really good sheep meat access in the moment. Um, we've got... Uh, a quota at the moment that's dedicated for New Zealand products um, that's duty-free uh, and that's just over 125,000 tonnes. To put that into context, the EU only imports around 113,000 tonnes. So we've got really, really good exports in there. Um, due to market dynamics, we don't fill that quota. Uh, we stretch it out, as I said, to the likes of China, the US, UK, a range of other uh, other markets. Um, but we do account for about 37% of all the EU sheep meats uh, imports. Um, it's still a relatively small amount in terms of EU consumption. So uh, they, uh, our imports only actually make up 7% of the EU sheep meat consumed. Um, mm -hmm. So to put, so a lot of that comes from domestic consumption. But the good thing there is we know that consumption's high in the EU. Um, should market dynamics change, we have the capacity to use that quota. Um, and we also know that there's continued consumer demand there. Uh, in terms of beef, look, that's a very different story. Our current beef access is, uh, for lack of a better term, terrible. <laughs> that's, the term. Uh, that's the technical trade term. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got a, another New Zealand only quota, um, but that has an in quota rate of 20%. And it's only 1,100 tonnes. And there is a lot of conditions on the type of beef that is. So it's quite, it doesn't cover all of the beef that we send overseas. Uh, very small quota. The tariffs outside of the quota, we consider, uh, we would deem them prohibitive. So upwards of 50% you're having to pay. So really makes it difficult. Um, we do export a little bit outside of that and still able to make a profit. So we are on an annual basis around 3,000 tonnes. Um, but look, the EU imports 218,000 tonnes. So New Zealand currently makes up a whopping 1.45% of the EU's beef imports, which is pretty rough. Uh, yeah. That that currently accounts for less than one percent of all beef that's consumed in the EU, um, and and it's it's pretty appalling to be fair, and that's largely comes down to those really really high tariff rates. So what's the history there though? How do we end up? And before we talk about where we've got to in the new, how historically why have we ended up with that pretty good lamb excess, 
but really terrible, to use that trade term, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, access for beef. What? How do we get to that position? Uh, so, well, I think there's there's two parts to it. First, we, we go, well, we're, for those that listened to the, the last podcast in the UK, when the EU, uh, when the UK joined the European community in the 1970s, we had really good access into the UK, obviously. Um, and so as part of them joining on, we got a good deal for lamb, for sheep meat. So uh, actually, before Brexit, we had a sheep meat quota of uh, over 200,000, uh, and that was split between the UK and the EU. So, you know, historically, we've been able to continue to have that sheep meat access. Um, on beef, uh, the EU and its member states, particularly Ireland, France, Spain, are protectionists. So we know that they spend a lot of money to support their farmers unnecessarily. Um, we know their farmers are very, very influential politically. Um, and we know that they are trying to prevent imports coming in left, right and centre. So they uh, they uh, produce 6.9 million tonnes um, and they consume 6.4 million tonnes. So there's a, they, they mostly uh, eat what they consume essentially. Uh, so they are preventing imports from coming in all the time because they're, they're nervous. They're not as effective because they're subsidised. And so the likes of uh, those that aren't subsidised coming in represent a, a real or imagined danger to them. And it's probably as a factor of those quotas and, and so on. I think you know a lot of New Zealand farming tend to think of the EU, particularly the UK, as a, a land market because obviously we spend more there. But domestically, are they like the rest of them? They eat a lot more beef than sheep meat. Uh, they do, but they eat a lot more um, sheep meat than the rest of the world. If that yep. makes sense. Yeah. Yep. No, that. So a lot of sheep meat, but they're still a, a predominantly a beef eating. Beats the big red meat in town, basically. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Cool. Um, just. Before we get into more details, this is the flip side of when we're negotiating an agreement. How important is New we're, we're small, but uh, is there much trade comes from the EU to New Zealand? What's the most important? I mean, what are we sort of putting on the table for them to sell to us? Um, I think this is a really uh, it's a great question, Aaron, because that gives you an indication of what we'll get to in terms of the outcomes. Yeah. We we don't give the EU almost anything. We're not a big market for them. Yeah. Uh, we're described as a in terms of our. Uh, uh, what the EU exports to New Zealand, it's a rounding error. <laughs> <laughs> so we shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't laugh, but that's that's <clears throat> how they describe it. You know, whether you know, I think I got a comparison uh, that our our economic weight was similar to like the likes of Malta. Don't mm. quote me on that, but they but we're not big fish for them to fry. Yeah. So the question is, why do they want to FTA with us if it's not? Mm. Um, if, if it's not economic, I think there's been a while since the EU was able to complete an FTA, get it over the line. Um, there is also an assumption that FTAs are morally reprehensible um, in the EU context. So can we do okay. can we do an FTA with a country that believes the same values that we do, um, puts as much emphasis on sustainability that we do, has similar labour and human rights standards, that sort of stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're kind of a, a pretty easy fish to fry for them. Um, and actually what they were able to achieve um, in terms of the sustainability stuff in our FTA, they'll be pointing in their future FTAs with bigger, more economically important mm -hmm. fish like Australia. 
So it was a pretty, t I know, I think we talked about this um, a wee bit in the Brexit one, but I know certainly when we've talked about the UK uh, FTA, one of the levers there was the UK saw that as a possible doorway into the CPTPP, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And the UK is going through that accession process at the moment. Yeah. The EU, that's not of interest to them. It's, it's absolutely not. And I think even if they could, I mean, you, the EU has uh, 27 members. Uh, yep. So you've got 27 countries negotiating with uh, with the, the yep. CPTV members. It becomes pretty bloody complicated pretty quickly. All right. And look, you've touched on some of this, but what were we looking for when we went into this? That, that's the background. We went into negotiations for an FTA with the EU. What were we looking for? Obviously, beef was one thing. What else? Yeah, so beef was the was the main um, thing for us. I will mention though co-products as well. So um, we don't have any preferential access for co-products at the moment. We face the tariff rates that everywhere else in the world does. Um, it's a lot, you know, smaller fish. Fish. Uh, I keep talking about fish. We didn't. We probably wanted fish and seafood access as well. But our sector was after those co-product space. So um, the likes of pet food. Uh, you know, it's about ten percent. Uh, the tariff walls 20% uh, for tariffs. So mm -hmm. uh, when you take all of our um, co-products, including the likes of offal, you know, it's $285 million worth. So it's not, it's nothing to sneeze mm -hmm. at. Um, so to get kind of liberalisation in that space, as well as a better access for beef, those were the two main things that we were looking for. Uh, probably worth noting, um, actually dairy at this point. Mm -hmm. So um, as with beef, uh, the current dairy access is is very limited, minimal preferential access, um, and, uh, and uh, another technical trade term, fairly rubbish. Um, yeah. High tariff rates inside and outside quota. Uh, the dairy quotas were also uh, really hard to access because the EU had put on all these administrative burdens to make them hard to access. Um, so, you know, New Zealand hadn't export any butter or cheese quotas, uh, cheese in the last five years, essentially. We hadn't utilised those quotas because we couldn't. Mm. Um, so that was a New Zealand Inc. That was a really big push for that. Um, in terms of horticultural wine, there was a few things that they were wanting. Um, again, in those tariffs rates, they didn't have any pre preferential access. And then there's um, the other side of it in terms of investment services, uh, uh, travel arrangements, those sorts of things uh, is what New Zealand Inc. was after. Okay. Um, just on the dairy side of things, well, two questions for a start. We talked about sort of beef consumption and self-sufficiency and lamb consumption or sheep meat consumption, self-sufficiency. Um, does the EU import a lot of dairy products from elsewhere in the world if, if it doesn't get them from New Zealand or are they actually quite a self-sufficient market, do you know? Uh, if it was up to the EU, they wouldn't import any dairy products yep. from anywhere in the world. Hmm. Uh, so, okay. uh, you know, when we talk about EU FTAs, usually the last thing on the table is cheese, um, whether it's GIs, uh, whether it's, sorry, geographical indicators yep. and the protection of of uh, of cheeses from the EU or so whether it's about access. GIs are the names like camembert and those that are tied to a region. Is that what yeah. those are? Yeah. Yeah, there's also like the likes of champagne and, and that sort of stuff as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, if it was up to the EU, they would, they would prevent all dairy imports. Yeah. And our friends at Dairy NZ, they're um, like you're on behalf of Beef and Lamb New Zealand, you and your team, they're doing the same thing. They're in their boots and all as well on behalf uh, of New Zealand farmers. 
uh, Dairy New Zealand uh, doesn't actually do much international trade work. Okay. Um, there's a, a DCANS, which stands for mm-hmm. the Dairy Corporations of New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, and the likes of Fonterra were doing a lot of work on, on this trade trade stuff rather than Dairy New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. they've got... Cool. All right. Um, let's move on then. So we know where we're at at the moment. We've got a pretty good handle on why we want to get into this agreement. What's the process? How do you actually... Um, uh, Start a negotiation. How long does it take? What 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 happens? Yeah, so so these sorts of um, FTAs we call them comprehensive, high quality, and ambition. Those are the three three things that we describe these sorts of FTAs. They're pretty long, pretty complicated. Um, it started in June 2018, uh, and so when we kind of add it all up, there were 13 rounds of negotiations. Six of those were virtual during the pandemic, um, so it took four years. To, to reach an agreement. And oddly enough, that's actually pretty quick mm-hmm. <laughs> as FTAs go. Um, obviously, uh, CPTPP the, uh, and its predecessor, TPP, took a lot longer than that. Um, the South Korean um, uh, FTA took five, just over five, maybe six years. So um, four years isn't actually that bad in the big scheme of things. Okay. Uh, there's two kind of – oh, sorry. No, no, carry on. No. So I guess when we talk about the actual process, there's what you, we, we would call kind of a traditional FTA negotiation, uh, and that covers, you know, market access, customs procedures, uh, sanitary and phytosanitary standards, technical barriers to trade. It covers services. It covers, uh, you know, those those really kind of stock standard things when you think of trade. Uh-huh. Then, uh, as I kind of mentioned before, we get, we start getting into this different, space which i would say non-traditional but i think they will become the new norm uh which is areas like uh chapters on animal welfare like we saw in the uk Mm -hmm. uh, fta um in in the eu fta we've got a chapter on sustainable food systems uh we've got one on trade and sustainable development which covers climate change labor gender Indigenous peoples, uh, small to medium-sized enterprises. Uh, we've also got a chapter on digital trade. Um, mm-hmm. So actually, a lot of the time spent on this EU FTA process were on those non-traditional aspects um, because you're trying to find their feet. It's a new space. You're not quite sure what they would look like. Um, the EU has had uh, uh, more and more thoughts around what those non-traditional aspects look like, particularly in the sustainability space. And one of the key pushes from the EU was to have a trade and sustainable development chapter that was enforceable. So Mm -hmm. breaches can be taken through dispute settlement uh, mechanisms and you could theoretically put um, retaliatory actions in place. Now, that's pretty massive at the Mm -hmm. moment. If uh, if we don't hit, say, our Paris Agreement targets, um, there are some implications but it wouldn't necessarily go into that trade world. Um, now, under this agreement, it could. Okay. So those are quite meaty things that we're just not sure what's going to happen with those and trying to develop them. Um, so so that, it, that, that, in a way, that, that's reaching right back to on-farm production systems and quality in New Zealand and saying if New Zealand farms aren't achieving these sorts of targets or this sort of quality in the production system there could be implica- trade implications in return for that access theoretically yeah. yes yeah so uh, the 
important thing to note, though, is that uh, when we do kind of, if we got to that sort of stage, yeah. um, our WTO access would not be part of that conversation. It would be the access that we were granted under the FTA. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and one of the notes I was interested to read in here, Beef and Lamb New Zealand's role here is not necessarily as I understand, in the room banging the table or et cetera, et cetera, but it's providing information and so on. And any deal tends to be a compromise, a meeting in the middle. Part of Beef and Land New Zealand's role was sort of trying to advise on what we thought would get across the, t- looking at past FTAs and things like that and saying, look, this is where we think we could, what we could get. Is that Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's kind of two parts to that. Firstly, actually, there is a bit of banging on the table. Um, okay. So, it, you know, actually being industry, uh, you, you know, uh, Sam McIver, our CEO, Andrew Morrison, our chair, um, sat down with the EU negotiators um, and, and at that highest level and said, this is very clear what we're, our expectations are. Um, and it will be difficult for New Zealand to to do anything that doesn't hit those expectations. Um, so, you know, actually, as a former uh, government uh, negotiator, it's actually really helpful sometimes to have industry that can be a mm-hmm. bit firmer, be a bit harder, um, to say, gosh, look at w- what we're dealing with over there. Yeah. You need to help us out, come to a middle ground. So the, absolutely, the bagging the table is definitely part of it. Um, the other part of it is is making sure that, the New Zealand trade negotiators have everything at their disposal so they're able to get the outcomes that they can, mm-hmm. um, whether that's just information around what would work for us um, and, uh, in terms of the conditions. So one of the things that popped up in the EU, uh, um, EU negotiations was the EU wanted to include the term grass-fed mm-hmm. in terms of our beef access. Well, as, as everyone in the, <laughs> the red meat sector know, that's a pretty that's a pretty loaded term, and depending on how you just define that, it can be quite a restrictive term. Mm-hmm. So we worked with our uh, with the New Zealand negotiators to say, look, that's not going to work for us, and that's a that's a problem. Here's something that could look that could work for us, and we were able to get um, wording around uh, normal New Zealand pastoral conditions, mm-hmm. which kind of gave us a bit of space around that. So you're talking there the fact that, you know, we're pretty much grass fed, except for a couple of months of the year, they might be on a crop, for example, being fed, that sort of thing. It was to get away from that. Absolutely. They must eat, eat nothing but grass. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and allow for, um, I think there was the EU has very firm ideas of what their version of grass fed is and what mm-hmm. their version of grain fed is. Obviously, in New Zealand, we're dealing with a completely different system. Um, so we needed to kind of provide for that and also provide for, look, things may change. Things may develop. You know, we're constantly looking at technology in terms of improvements, but also to reduce reduce uh, methane emissions. So you kind of need a bit of scope to say things evolve, and we don't want to be restricted by this FTA. And I guess you know, we think about these things. We tend to think of that sort of a high level negotiation. But you touched on there the likes of Andrew Morrison, and I think one of our other directors went over, whose name I can't recall off the top of my head. But is that is Kate, there sort of Kate went over? Yeah. There's some farmer to farmer discussion goes on here, or is it all sort of left to, to a higher level, or, or you know, is that get to that point where people who are affected on on the ground at both sides actually yarn to each other about it? The the farmer to farmer conversations are the most valuable conversations that we have because you put two farmers in the room, nine times out of ten they're dealing with the same challenges, 
and especially when you have um, similar, uh, you know, the likes of uh, a New Zealand farmer talking to an Irish farmer or, mm. or something like that, you know, they're actually not that much of a world away. Um, so those conversations are really, really important. They're harder to do in the EU because of uh, because of a their protectionism, but b their reliance on subsidies. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I remember having a conversation uh, with a, a French uh, delegate the other day, and farmers over in, in in France don't necessarily consider themselves business owners; they consider mm-hmm. themselves farmers. So there are those kind of distinctions, but wherever possible, we we always think it's far more valuable to have farmer to farmer conversations. Just you're able to break down the barrier a, a lot more easily. Yeah. And I know we're sort of talking from the red meat side of things, but and we talked about the different, slightly different approaches between the the, the red meat industry and the dairy industry. Did the dairy, the dairy industry in New Zealand get farmers over there as well on the ground and have any yarn, or is that just more our approach? Um, they tend to, I think because of the yep. pandemic, it was harder, harder yeah. to. Um, and so that's where the likes of Mel Poulton, who's our um, special yep. agricultural trade envoy, her being able to have those conversations on farms behalf is really, really important. So look, I'm not quite sure about this particular FTA, but that's yep. their standard approach. Yep. Yep. Mel was well trained. She was a Beef and Lamb New Zealand staff member. I know, I know. She's absolutely fantastic. We are very big fans of Mel Poulter. Shout out if you're listening to this podcast. Of course she's listening. Why would she not be? <laughs> um, all right. So uh, we talked a wee bit about, you know, the role of Beef and Lamb New Zealand there and some of the analyses you did. Um, part of that was not just saying we want this number of tonnes, but there was some qualitative, I guess, or, or the type of meat access. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so... Uh, I might take a bit of a step back, Aaron, if that's all right, because yeah. we talk about tonnage a lot and volumes a lot. Um, and actually, when we're having, uh, when we're negotiating FTAs, our, we're wanting full liberalisation. So we don't mm-hmm. want any barriers in place. Yeah. We don't want any quotas. We don't want any hubbub. We want it to go through free. Um, so usually that's harder to get, obviously. Um, but you saw, like, say, the likes of uh, South Korea or the UK FTA or, or part of our access and um, CPTPP mm-hmm. is there's a transition period to allow for markets to adapt. And then after that, you can you can you have full access to that market for different products. So that's our goal. Uh, it was pretty clear pretty early on that that wasn't going to be possible with the EU. And there, there are a number of aspects to that. And so feel free to, to cut this out, but I might just do a slight little history lesson if that's Yeah, no, no, go possible. for it. This stuff's interesting. Uh, so uh, going back, uh, the New Zealand uh, EU FTA represents a real step change in the EU's approach. And the reason that they did a real, that they had, a, that they needed a step change um, is because they, they had, um, they hadn't been able to ratify and implement an FTA in years. So they had negotiated a deal with Canada, but they hadn't been able to get it through the different EU parliaments. Uh, they had negotiated a deal with Mercosur, similarly couldn't get it through the EU par- uh, parliaments. Um, and so just as you know, there was all that hubbub around the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, years ago, the EU had that over particularly the Mercosur agreement. So that's um, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay and Brazil, um, where they just got 
absolutely slammed because of the environmental or the lack of the environmental components of the trade. So at the same time that they were finishing off the FTA, um, there were substantiated reports around deforestation of the Amazon uh, driven by beef production. Um, and so the idea that you were going to give increased better access to Brazilian beef that had burnt down the Amazon is a pretty hard for your average citizen to swallow. Mm. So that's why when they, they we were negotiating, they said we absolutely have to include the likes of environment. We absolutely have to include the likes of climate change. We absolutely have to include the likes of animal welfare. So that's why we get into that kind of non-traditional space very quickly. And obviously in New Zealand, because of the hubbub with TPP, um, our government is is fully on board with making sure that trade works for all and that trade actually supports wider um, societal goals and ambitions. So you kind of had these two uh, convergence of ideals in this space, hence why this should have actually been a, a match made in heaven. Yeah. Um, as part of that, you know, that pushback on the environmental front with, with Brazil and, and with beef, you had, uh, you've got strong farming lobbies in the EU who co-opted that pretty quickly, particularly France, Ireland and Belgium, who said, look, we need to protect our markets and this is a pretty good way to do it uh -huh. because everyone agrees with it. So you had this protectionism, this importance around high uh, uh, products produced to a high standard that mirrored the EU standard. Now, that's probably mm -hmm. a debate for another day. Um, but you kind of had this conversions where things are going to get really, really difficult. Um, under Merkel and under the Canadian agreement, they were only able to get those permanent quotas. So Canada got 55,000 tonnes um, and Merkel got 99,000 tonnes. So we knew that full liberalisation was off the table. Yep. And we're dealing with permanent quotas, but we needed to have, make sure that these quotas were going to be commercially viable. So that means that you can actually access them. It's enough to not only cover our current trade, but also provide growth. Um, and and actually, there was a zero and quota rate. Those are the kind of the three things that we were looking uh -huh. for. That wasn't what we would want in any FTA, but we had to be pragmatic and practical yeah. around what was actually being able to, to what conversation we could actually have with the with the EU. Um, so sorry, I just wanted to provide that that context because yeah, it, we were definitely after something a lot more ambitious uh, than not only what we got, but also what we were negotiating on mm -hmm. in those early days. Um, so. You know, when we were thinking about, well, what do we actually want out of this agreement? It was, what do we want in terms of commercial? What is meaning, uh, meaningful in, in terms of a commercial lens? What is the EU market? What would we be after in that portion of the EU market? And what, what, what could we actually get? The other kind of contextual aspect is the EU and all of our negotiations was very, very aware that they had started uh, negotiations with Australia. They'd started that process with Australia and they saw a real linkage as whatever we give to New Zealand, we're going to have to bump up, bulk up for the Australian uh, FTA. So there was a real kind of linkages between all of those things together. Um, so that kind of context, I think, is is pretty important when we are discussing this. And since I've gone on that tangent, I've completely forgotten what your original question was. 
we were talking about some of the, those qualitative aspects, you know, what beef and lamb New Zealand's advice was, not just, just tonnage, but um, even things like, yeah, the quota conditions, fresh versus flow, frozen split, that sort of thing. What we, as you say, our position in an ideal world would be just open it up, but we recognise it's going to be a compromise. I think it was advising on what that sort of compromise could be, what we'd get through, and I think you've sort of covered most of that, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. I will add a couple more things. So, the the what the EU is uh, incredibly uh, talented at is providing access, but not actually allowing trading partners to access it. Okay. Yeah. So they're they're pretty sneaky. Uh, I would like to say other things, but I won't swear in those podcasts. <laughs> so they do all they put in all these tricky things in place. So whether who can access the quota, mm. uh, have eligibility around uh, quota allocation. How long can you access the quota? We might give you an allocation, but it only lasts 30 days and it takes six weeks to get over there. And that's before the shipping issues, by the way. So um, how do we calculate the volume? Do we calculate it on product weight or carcass weight equivalent? What, uh, what are the conditions? We'll only let some cuts in and not others. That difference between grass-fed, grain-fed, whether you do the, the actual uh, carcass weight of the animal that you're allowed to get it from. Mm-hmm. Then there's product types. Product types, you're talking about fresh frozen, but then there's prepared, processed, offals, tallow. They do everything that they can to make it as difficult as possible to actually access the volumes that they've given you. Yeah. So we need to try and make it as easy as possible for, for, for New Zealanders to actually use those quotas. This is why I like podcasts, because A, we can do a narrow topic, but do it in depth, and you can follow threads where they go, rather than just trying to do a you know, five or six minute soundbite on the radio, or even bloody a thousand words on uh, in, a, in a media article. You're never going to cover some of this level of nuance and, and complexity. So, the tangents, but, I believe some people call them. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we're exploring, exploring issues, Francis. Um, well, look, we're going to get on to the outcomes. I think most people have heard about those in general terms, but tell us... Um, but how it resolved, how it all wrapped up at the end. Um, I understand like um, meat and dairy were the big ones for us, but they were actually some of the last things to be involved. And it also required a few boots on the ground, people from, from New Zealand turning up over there to give it that last bit of momentum. Yep. So market access negotiations, regardless of, of any FTA, are always going to be the last thing that you talk about most of the time. Um, and they're usually agreed at the highest level. So when we talk about the highest level, that's basically Prime Minister and yep. and her counterpart. Um, in the case of the EU FTA, it was not only market access was the final conversation, but actually it was beef and dairy were the final two conversations. Um, and that came down to, we talk about banging on the table. I wasn't in the room, but I am hoping that both Minister O'Connor and, and, and Prime Minister Ardern were banging on the table uh, when they were sitting next to their counterparts because it came down to, to those final hours. Yep. Um, in the weeks leading up to it, you had both Minister O'Connor and the Prime Minister talking with their counterparts in different EU countries, having those sorts of conversations. There were uh, reports in the week leading up to it uh, about the PM sitting down with both uh, French president uh, and, and the Spanish president as well. During that time, uh, your kind of your boots on the ground, your negotiators were in Brussels uh, having a lot of sleepless nights going diving down to that detail so that so that those at that political level, they could kind of cut cut right to the chase. Um, 
both uh, Meat Industry Association and Beef and Lamb had uh, had people over in Brussels to support those negotiations. And as I said, that grass fed was one of those things that they talked about in those in that final day. Um, so Dave Harrison and um, Sam McIver were in Brussels for us. They also had a lot of sleepless nights, but they were kind of really getting down to getting down to some of the nitty gritty um, and some of that stuff eventuated. Some of the stuff didn't eventuate in the final uh, outcome, um, but they were having those conversations. A lot were were uh, robust to say the least. Mm. Uh, the outcomes, yeah, they were they were disappointing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, does it actually come in the end? It comes down almost to that, to a prime minister and her equivalent. They're the, almost the last two in the room, or, or you know, the, there'll be others there, obviously. But at that point, industry reps like Beef and Lamb New Zealand have done all they can. That it, it comes down to that smaller table, almost. Yep, yep. Uh, I would be surprised if there was more than uh, five people at yeah. that table in that last hour. Yep. And you mentioned that the final hours, the last hour. Is there actually a hard deadline? You know, is it a, if we don't get it done by five o'clock today, it falls over, or what's the what is actually bringing it to an end? The the hard deadline is a difficult one because they're, they're usually self-imposed by both parties or, or either party. Um, a hard deadline is actually really helpful. Um, as a negotiator, it puts the pressure on. You have to kind of get, get to a space where you can get a deal done. So uh, I personally like a hard deadline. I think it's really helpful. Yep. Um, but it also means that at, at some point you've got to call chicken. Yeah. So it, it can be less beneficial if the other party isn't going to move. So speaking of who will move and who won't move and, and um, call in chicken or whether you like, um, this is not inte- this isn't a rhetorical question because I think you know, a lot of people have heard about this and have views on it, but is it a good outcome? It's a good outcome for some sectors. Yeah. It's, it's a good, good outcome point. for, say, the services sector. It's mm-hmm. a good outcome uh, – for our horticulture colleagues, it's a good outcome for our wine colleagues. Uh, it's not a good outcome for beef, and it's not a good outcome for dairy, both in terms of market access and, and some of those geographical uh, indicators. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you a bit of context, <laughs> yeah, I, I won't bombard you with statistics, but I do find some of the statistics quite helpful to provide yeah. context. So. Uh, for beef, the FTA covers 2% of all of New Zealand's beef exports. Yeah. It covers 4% of all of the EU's beef imports. Under the FTA, our access will represent 0.15%. I'll say it again, 0.15% of the EU's annual beef consumption. Mm. Now, outside of the FTA, we represented... 0.015% of the EU's annual beef consumption. So there's technically an increase, but <laughs> I wouldn't just technically an increase. I would not describe that as being commercially meaningful. Yeah. So not for beef. Uh, I won't go into to dairy because that's probably another podcast for another day. Um, but I will say we did get full liberalisation on those, some of those co-products I talked about. Mm-hmm. So wool is now 0% uh, tariff. Pet food is now 0% tariff. 
Um, we also uh, we also got an increase in terms of sheet meat. And so, you know, it was good before, it's better now. The rider on that, though, is we weren't using our full quota beforehand anyway. So this is extra capacity. We, I mean, it's nice to have, I guess. We're not going to throw it away because one day we might want to use it. But at the moment, it probably won't mean any more sheep meat going to the EU. That's 100% right. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So for us, beef was the biggie. Um, those numbers are pretty small. They are, as you said, the key. It's better, but context is everything. It's it's a fraction of a percent increase. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, outcome of that is it likely to have wool co-products? That's not. You know, as you say, they they aren't numbers to be sneezed at. They just pale a bit in comparison to the main products. Um, what's it likely to mean? We like we're going to come into where this goes, but the numbers we're talking is that likely to make a difference at the farm gate to farmers' bottom lines? Uh, no, not for beef. Not for no. beef. I, I will say, I, I pet food's one though that I, I don't think people talk a, a lot about. Pet food is an absolutely profitable, high value market that is absolutely booming. So, so no tariffs, is any quota or anything like on that, or is it actually one where we have got basically what we'd like, free li complete liberalisation. Complete liberalisation. And so pet food is is growing uh, globally. It's growing in the EU. Um, you, you know, you, you'll have high cost of living, but you'll still want to make sure that your yeah. Pomeranian gets fed, grass fed beef uh, in a can. You know, it, it, that's that's actually a big growth market. So, you know, you could see that it's pretty small at the moment, but you could definitely see that grow. Mm. I'd imagine uh, what you were saying about the EU, though, we can't use that as a backdoor to sneak some prime ribeye or anything in through that pet food. Well, that'll be pretty well restricted. Yeah, no, yeah. unfortunately, that that's not that's not an option on the table. <laughs> I like yeah, your thinking, cool. though, Aaron. Yeah, no, well, you can see. I'm, I've learned a lot in the last hour, Francis. That's obviously the way you got to think when you're dealing with some of these these countries. But um, look, so that's what it means. What the outcomes may be for us back here. But uh, the key thing is, this isn't actually. Uh, that's the agreement. The agreement hasn't been, I'm not sure what the right word is, implemented or in place, etc. What What happens from here? We've sort of reached that, okay, this is what's going to, this is our on paper, we've signed it, etc. What actually happens? Yep, so it goes through a ratification process. Um, uh, the EU's are obviously a bit different because it has to get translated um, into all the different European, uh, all the different European uh, languages. Um, it the, to the, uh, I, I will say actually, I'll use this as an opportunity to, to give credit where credit's due to the negotiators. Our mm -hmm. negotiators worked really, really hard on this. Yeah. Um, they were able to negotiate a, um, an agreement that meant it only needs to go through the European Parliament rather than mm -hmm. 27 parliaments. That sort of thing is actually really important, which means that that ratification period is going to be considerably reduced. So um, it's still going to probably, if everything goes to plan, you'll probably see ratification, you know, early 2024. Um, and because it only needs to be implemented at that EU level rather than at member states level, you'll probably see it pretty quickly implemented. So say mid-2024, you'll be able to access the additional beef quota that, that we have in place and you'll be able to send through the likes of pet food and, uh, without tariffs. I mean, the thing, and we sort of talked about Farmgate for beef farmers or dairy farmers and not a great deal, but for New Zealand Inc. as a whole, 
the, the horticulture, wine, services, those are, are actually, it's going to make a difference to the country as a whole, just maybe not to our industries. Yeah, there, there will be flow on, uh, flow on effects, absolutely, especially in that um, investment investment and financial services type space, um, and particularly in the technologies and digital trade space as well. So what happens now, though? Do we just brush uh, the dust off our hands and move on to another country? We forget about the EU or what's, you know, there's the ratification process, et cetera, but do we keep working on trade stuff there? We absolutely do. Um, I think I've nearly finished wallowing. I think I've I think I've nearly, nearly got to that that acceptance uh, stage yeah, in my grieving yeah. process. Um, but look, I think the the real focus will be maintaining um, the the current WTO sheet meat access because mm-hmm. it's huge and and we do uh, use it. Slash, you know, if anything was to happen with other markets, it would become uh, increasingly more valuable to us. So um, now now when we think about access, uh, that particular type of access. There's no, re- there's not really a world in which the EU is going to say actually we're going to reduce that quota. That's not, okay. that's not, not on the table. But there is a pipeline of non-tariff measures uh, around sustainability um, that are coming down the tracks. Uh, we've been working really, really hard to ensure that New Zealand products aren't hit by these, either through exemptions or that EU um, officials. Uh, are able to kind of make sure that it works for us, mm-hmm. um, but th- but this is a very real th- threat. And, and I'll give you an, uh, an example. So um, the EU, uh, a lot of the the actual sentiments around some of these sustainability measures uh, are not actually up for the discussion, right? So we'll mm-hmm. look at um, deforestation. The EU wants to pre- uh, prevent its contributing to deforestation around the world. That's good. I don't think anyone can argue with that. We know that is that the evidence tells us some of the main drivers of deforestation and, and forest de- degradation around the world is through the expansion of agricultural land. Most of that is linked to soy, palm oil, cocoa, coffee, wood, and beef. Again, that we we know that to be true. Then the EU wants to put in regulations to prevent the importation of those goods. Mm-hmm. All right. This is where it starts to get a little bit difficult. So there's current regulations in place that the EU wants proof that products from these commodity groups were produced, weren't produced because of deforestation. Well, what proof do we provide? Mm. Who has to provide it? At what level do you have to provide it? How do you define deforestation? Uh, Oh, and we've included beef, but should we include sheep meat too? Okay, so if you're including sheep meat, then that's actually not related to your original issue around deforestation. That's just a protectionist measure because over 90% of all the EU's sheep meat comes from either the UK and New Zealand, who our problems at the moment domestically are afforestation, not deforestation (laughs) because of carbon farming. So it quickly becomes that's a really good goal and we agree Mm -hmm. with that. We can get on board. But once you unpick it, oh no, this might mean that we might not actually be able to use our use our quota that we have in place. Yeah. So that's why we will continue to look at the EU. We will continue to work really hard to make sure we can still access what we're entitled to. And is that yeah, so that's an ongoing process from what you said. They that'll constantly be happening. They deliberately or not will be looking for ways 
that we may have the quota, but we aren't allowed to use it, for want of a better word, because of what they say we are or are not doing here in New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And that's just one example. You know, we've identified six or seven different regulations that are in the pipeline, which might prevent us, whether it's around animal welfare. And actually, mm -hmm. animal welfare is a really good example. One of the great things of this FTA was that there was formal recognition that while we have different practices and systems and approaches, we have comparable outcomes. Okay. Yeah. So that's actually really massive. So mm. that when that those regulations come through around, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z in terms of animal welfare, otherwise you can't, you yep. know, export to us. We've got a piece of paper saying, yeah, but we can. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're functionally, we're treating animals as well as you are, at least. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Yeah, so there, there are those sorts of things um, in the FTA that actually are valuable to us, probably for these things coming down the line. The other one is um, antimicrobial usage uh -huh. and antimicrobial resistance. Similarly, uh, there was agreement that different approaches, but comparable outcomes. So at the moment, it won't change anything for us, but it might prevent us from getting hit by some of these things later on down the piece. All right, that's been fairly thorough. Is there anything else you wanted to cover off that you've forgotten about or another thread you want to pick at? No, no, I won't go off on another tangent. Um, <laughs> it's it's what I will say is it's quite easy to get down on the situation. Um, it's not ideal. It's disappointing. Um, but I think, unfortunately, we can't win them all. Mm. We had a really, really great outcome into the UK, really great outcome yep. into the UK and then quickly followed by not so great an outcome with the EU. Um, but the EU is probably the last comprehensive FTA maybe New Zealand will ever do. Okay. So now we need to think about how do we get access either improved or completely new through other channels? And, and that's kind of where the next conversation is going mm -hmm. uh, around uh, whether it's the US, we don't have a free trade agreement with the US, but and our access is pretty good, to be fair. How do we improve it? through other non kind of traditional mechanisms. We want to get into India, but it's highly unlikely that they'll do a free trade agreement with New Zealand that covers all of our products. Mm -hmm. So how do we get better access into India? Those are the kind of conversations that we're getting to at the moment. So when you, you know, we've talked about, and I think New Zealand farmers are pretty au fait with FTAs, but when you talk about non-traditional mechanisms, what are you talking about there? Is that just product by product or, or industry by industry or? It sounds a bit nefarious. It's black ships in the middle of the night. Or... Uh, yeah, that's uh, call me Francis Nefarious Dykeman. <laughs> I think you can you can absolutely do that. Uh, that's what we need to think about now, and and that's the kind of hard conversations that we need to have with both the government and with you know our counter our counterparts across the the um the agricultural sector. How do we get deals without doing massive deals? Um, and yep. we do need to be creative in this space. So pick a pick a, a bit at a time rather than as you say the comprehensive agreements that cover as much as we can in one go. Yeah, cool. exactly. Yeah, awesome. bribery, I, spying, you know, all the that fun yeah. stuff. <laughs> the, the key thing here, I think, you know, it's a disappointment. The, the opportunity we didn't get make as much of the opportunity for beef in particular as we could have, but it's better than we had at least. So it's, and, it's and better parts, than we had. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and kiwi well, fruit did well. Onions did well. You know. Yep. No, all credit our, with our, credit's due. Our friend organisations, their brothers and sister farmers, etc., all all pretty happy. Um, and a few of them in particular. Um, look, we've covered a heck of a lot, 
and I, I like podcasts, as I say, that's the, their place is to cover some of this in depth. But if people want to find out even more, um, there'll be quite a bit of stuff on Beef and Land New Zealand's website, et cetera, I guess. Is that the best place to go and find out more? Yeah, that's the best place. Or feel free to, to uh, flick me an email. I'm more than happy to have a conversation or give me a call because, as you can tell from this podcast, I love a good rant. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm here if you need to talk. Awesome. Thanks, Francis. Um, we'll put the link in the, in the blurb of this podcast as well to where you can find some of that stuff. I probably won't put Francis's uh, text number and email in there, but um, you can find us through the Beef and Lamb New Zealand website as well if you really want to talk about this a bit more. But hey, look, um, last chance, Francis. Anything else you want to get off your chest while we're on this? But <laughs> Feels like a therapy session. No, I'm fine. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Ah, cool. No, look, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, Francis Dignan, Senior Manager, International Trade at uh, Beef and Land New Zealand and the Policy Advocacy and Environment Team. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Aaron. I really appreciate it.